Welcome in to News and Views with Tom Lamprecht. The stories you've heard and the ones you need to hear. My heart goes out to the Tyree Nichols family. Difficult to watch that evil that we saw. I hate the fact that it was five black men that actually did this to another black man. President Biden promised to end Title 42. He is now expanding restrictions on asylum seekers. Classified documents. This was a cover-up. Your life, your values, your voice. This is News and Views with Tom Lamprecht on Talk 96.3 and 103.7. Welcome, man. We will get through as much of all that uh, Bumper had to say as we possibly can. We also have uh, a special guest coming up, uh, Senator Phil Graham, who we were going to have on last week. That got bumped back to this week. We'll be talking to him about his uh, new book, The Myth of American Inequality. Vice President Kamala Harris joined North Carolina leaders to talk about small business in Raleigh at a roundtable. So it was Kamala Harris, never had a full-time job in her life, never had to sign a, seven, never had to sign the front side of a paycheck. Wally Nickel, who's got his law degree, lifelong politician. Deborah Ross has a law degree, lifelong politician. Valerie Fushi, lifelong politician. They all came down to, together on Air Force Two. Uh, was met by Roy Cooper, who's never had a real job in his life, <laughs> never signed the front of, of a paycheck, never had a business, never ran a business. None of these people ever ran business, and they come and they have a roundtable talking about business <laughs> to Hispanics. Listen, I, you know what? I, I, w- I, I hand it to the Hispanic community. They are a hard-working community, and they could run circles. They could Maybe the roundtable was them telling these politicians how to run a business. Because the idea that Kamala Harris is going to come down and give some sort of wisdom. Now, she's going to come down and she's going to offer all kinds of handouts, as if it was coming from her pocketbook, her and Joe's pocketbook. But, I mean, what a joke. What an absolute joke and a waste of time. By the way, a friend of mine, his daughter was flying out of RDU at around noon today. And, of course, all the flights were delayed while they had to sit around and wait for Kamala Harris's plane to land and uh, you know, give, her, give it the VIP treatment. You know, this is, um, what, the second trip she's made to North Carolina in six yeah, months or yeah, so? Yeah, less than six months. Mm-hmm. I mean, she was down here a month or so ago. Wasn't oh, okay. Yeah, it just goes to show you how important North Carolina is, which, you know, the last few elections, um, you know, basically, you know, Roy Cooper is about the only thing that wins any any Democrat uh, statewide election. So uh, He and Josh. Yeah. Yeah, Josh Dunn, yeah. <laughs> so did you see the end of the Cincinnati Bengals game? I know we're not a sports show, but, boy, I tell you what, um, Joseph Osai who plays for the Bengals. I guess he's a linebacker, maybe, for the Bengals. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, end of the game, less than 30 seconds left in the game, The uh, Patrick Mahomes, the quarterback for the Chiefs, tries to advance the ball. He, the, the goal was to get it close enough. It was a tie ball game, 2020. And uh, the, the goal was to get the, the ball close enough so that they could get a field goal. He got it down to um, about the... 45-yard line of the Bengals. And this guy, Joseph Osai, comes in. He clearly was out of bounds. And and this guy just knocks the heck out of him right into the bench, literally the bench of the uh, of the Chiefs. Was it the Chiefs' side or the Bengals' side? I can't remember. But anyway, mm. 
I think it's the Bengals. If you're watching the game, you immediately knew yeah. that this is going to be a unnecessary roughness call, which it was, which advanced the ball 15 yards, which the kicker for um, the, the Chiefs came in, uh, Harrison Butker, and uh, kicked a 45-yard field goal. And uh, the rest is history. Yeah, I mean, more than likely would have gone in overtime because, uh, you know, yeah. not saying that he couldn't hit a 62 or 3-yard field Highly goal. Unlikely. I mean, it's happened, but it's pretty unlikely. Well, particularly and, and the, he had a great kick. Yeah, particularly in the but it, But if it was from 15 yards further, it wouldn't have made it. Well, you have a, you have a few places starting to tighten up a little bit tighter when it's that far away, if you know what I mean. Well, <laughs> I yeah. Mean, <laughs> and apparently it was cold, cold. But, you know, it was clearly the right call. Um, I don't. I don't think he hit him all that much. I think it was a little bit of showboating, uh, but it was clearly the right call. He was out of bounds. But but, I, but you knew immediately they're going to yeah, call. But, it. I, but I don't. Ju- I don't judge him. I mean, it's easy. I mean, sitting in a leather chair watching it, or or from a booth saying, "Oh my gosh, right. what a what a crazy." Co-. You're, you're running wide, full speed, and your adrenaline is up, and everything else. But. I mean, the, the refs this year have called roughing the pastor uh, oh. calls for for just legitimate pastor. everyday roughing the pastor. You said roughing the pastor. <laughs> that's that's actually what they're doing in Washington D.C. Um, but uh, you know, no. Well, there it is on the screen if you're yeah. watching online, and it was it was clearly a foul. Oh, clearly a foul. But yeah. but. Uh, but, you know, there's been so many calls this year that have just been legitimate tackles of a quarterback, and they call roughing the passer. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, <laughs> if, the, if the NFL gives out awards for the stupidest play of the year, I think Osai is going to be in the finalist. Yeah. I mean, he, he didn't touch him that much, but you don't have to touch somebody much. And it, it well, I mean, he ended up getting hurt kind of bad. His knee was. Yeah, it looked like he was pretty roughed up. Yeah. Jermaine Pratt, who also plays for the Bengals, he was cursing this guy upside one up one side and down the other after the game. <laughs> his name. Yeah, yeah. I, I heard that. That's just, a, that's just being a terrible teammate. Yeah, I mean, really. Well, it was, uh, I, I mean, and, and I don't if if you're watching the game, Osai was on the side, literally looked like he was crying in tears. I mean, he was hiding his head inside his helmet, and he, he, he knew uh, that he had blown it. I, I, I don't know. Hopefully you learn from those kind of things. Um, Town Hall, my friend said he was shoved, not clobbered. He was shoved. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, you agree. I mean, you look at, I mean, first first of all. But, but you knew, it was gonna, you knew oh, yeah. they were going to call. You were going to get the call. But, I mean, it was really, uh, it was really, uh, it was not a big deal. <laughs> I bet, I, I bet uh, Patrick Mahomes, uh <laughs> I mean, if he didn't want to fall oh, yeah. down, he wouldn't have fallen down. Yeah, there. yeah, you know, I mean, it used to be that you flopped in the NBA. Now yeah. they're flopping in the NFL, especially the quarterbacks. Yeah, but I thought I thought it was a lot of inconsistent calls in the second half um, that ju- there were judgment calls on on both teams. Um, but really, that kind of favored the Chiefs. I mean, I really didn't care who won because I actually yeah, I, I like both teams, and I, and it was I just wanted I wanted the players to decide it, not the referees. Well, and, and late, the Eagles are going to win it all anyway. I don't know. Patrick Mahomes, I wouldn't bet money against him, but the Eagles got a heck of a defense. Anyway, my wife's at home right now saying, okay, enough with the sports. (laughs) Tyree Nichols, the guy that was killed by the five black police officers in Memphis. uh, And we were talking about before we went on there. You know, that that whole thing is, uh, first of all, it makes the officer that supposedly, well, is in prison right now because of George Floyd's death. 
uh, it makes that look pretty tame. I mean, these five officers beat the snot out of Tyree Nichols. And um, it's, you know, and, and I, you, you've probably heard some rumors out there. One of the rumors is that uh, that Tyree Nichols was going out with one of the police officers' girlfriends, something to that effect. Now, I have no empirical evidence of that. I, that's just sort of a rumor that's floating around. But it does fit the narrative that it was, as you said before we went on there, that it seems like it was something personal. I mean, it was more than just, you know, the guy had no rap sheet. No. He mm -hmm. had uh, no no real resistance, um, and they just went after him big time. Yeah, and, and I keep hearing people talk about, uh, you know, look, we our officers got to have more training. That that <laughs> There's absolutely no training is going to stop stop what they did those, those guys there committed assault oh yeah ultimately you know, i guess it'll be charged for murder but ultimately he died and i guess it will be murder at some point but there I, there's absolutely no situation where where they could have got should have got to that level and and i think it's i said that i said uh i said that to my wife a few days ago and i said you know this has got to be a case that those guys, somebody had a connection. It was just all too personal. Um, if not, these guys are just really, really just bad people that are hunting people down. Believe it or not, CNN, uh, a.k.a. Um, Van Jones, came out and literally said, you know, despite the fact that these were black officers, or as he said, they, these were people of color, that they were involved in it, this is still a case of white racism. I kid you not. Quote, how do we explain Nichols' horrific killing, allegedly at the hands of officers who look like him? But the narrative, the white cop kills unarmed black men, should never have been the sole lens through which we attempt to understand police abuse and misconduct. It's time to move to a more nuanced discussion of the way police violence endangers black lives one of the sad facts about anti-black racism is that black people ourselves are not immune from its harmful effects. So um, now, according to people like Van Jones, if a black person does something wrong, it's the white person's fault. Listen, bottom line is victim. Another well, another case of victimhood. Um, well, humanity is sinful and wrong yeah. and, and corrupt. And, and, and when it really gets corrupt, we see things like this happen. But for Van Jones to come out and try to, I mean, quite frankly, he's, he's shooting his own narrative in the foot. Well, Van, I mean, Van Jones, um, you know, his, his playbook, his, his advantage to have his, his uh, you know, show on CNN, I mean, the only reason he has a job is because he's a black man that spews hate for white people. He's, he's a sophisticated Al Sharpton. Yeah, he's yeah he's just he's a, a race. Is that race Al hustler. Sharpton with a college education? He's a race hustler, a whole lot a uh, whole lot better looking and a whole lot uh, more articulate than Al Sharpton. You know, the fact of the matter is, and and what I'm getting ready to say here might be controversial, so it's not necessarily your opinion or the opinion of the station. <laughs> but the FBI statistics are obvious and alarming. That there's more white and Hispanic people killed at the hands of policemen than black people. Anybody want to question me, go look it up. Yeah. I mean, that's a fact. In America, black males between the ages of 18 and 35 commit an unbelievable majority of the crimes in America. So... 
for for Van Jones or Al Sharpton or anyone else to say it's a system of of white racism or or anything like that, the fact of the matter is that they're getting pulled over more because they're committing crimes as a group, and that's just a fact. Don't that's not my opinion. Go look at the FBI statistics, and and. Even then, you're still having more Hispanic and whites getting killed at the hands of cops. Now, this here, to me, I, I think it will ultimately show out. This, this doesn't have anything to do with law enforcement. No, these these guys right here are just terrible human beings. Yeah. And th- even today, uh, one of the one of the shows I caught the tail end of one of the shows on the radio, um, you know, one of the, the liberal progressive shows, you know, were claiming that. There's no way these five black officers would have done this to a white man. I mean, you have got to be kidding me. I, by the way, CNN is sucking mud overall anyway. Nobody's listening to the Van Jones. I, I mean, this is really unbelievable. Uh, the latest ratings are the worst ratings they've had in nine years. Uh, just 444,000 viewers in prime time, 93,000 of the all-important 25 to 54 demographic. 417 viewers and 880,000 a demo for total day. Total day viewers. Um, they are they are sucking mud literally. Hey, we're going to take a time out. We're going to take a couple breaks early because we've got Phil Graham coming up. Stay with us. More news and views right around the corner. This is your Drive at 5 and ENC with Tom Lamprecht. Welcome back to News and Views on Talk 96.3 and 103.7. Welcome back in. A quick look at your weather forecast. Partly cloudy skies this evening becoming Overcast, over, overcast overnight, low of 46. Tomorrow, cloudy, occasional showers in the afternoon, a high of 61. Tomorrow night, rain showers becoming steady as the night goes on, a low of 42. Wednesday, more rain, a high of 44. Cloudy Wednesday night with a low of 36. And looking ahead to the weekend, it cools down considerably. Saturday's high. The mm-hmm. high is 39. So uh, we'll see. And I've seen some forecasts that uh, are calling for some icy precip of some sort towards the uh, weekend. Are there any national holidays? Are there any national holidays? Uh, It is uh, Yodel for Your Neighbor's Day. That was good, Clark. <laughs> I didn't know you could yodel like that. that Clark's talented. <laughs> well, well done. Never ceases to he wanted, he wanted to make sure I said that because he wanted to show off his yodeling school skills. Man, I've got uh, I've got a mouth problem that I, I can't uh, can't speak right. The dishes it, are falling. It's out. 15 days to Valentine's Day. There you go, guys. So go get your candy and your flowers. Get don't get your flowers yet. They'll be dead by the time you give them to your wife or your significant other. Uh, this is so predictable. The Justice Department told House Judiciary Committee Jim Jordan today that it could not disclose information related to the special counsel investigation into Biden's improper retention of classified documents because doing so could jeopardize the probe. <laughs> baloney. <laughs> of what total baloney? This is the same thing that uh, the press secretary would say. <laughs> what they really meant is the Justice Department only leaks information on Republicans. Yeah, bingo. <laughs> That's what they really meant. Jim Jordan launched his first formal investigation as chair of the House Judiciary Committee into Biden's mishandling of classified records and the DOJ's investigation. Jordan announced the panel's investigation after Merrick Garland picked former U.S. Attorney Robert Hur as a special counsel into, uh, to investigate the matter, escalating it to a formal investigation from a mere review as more classified records were discovered at the president's Delaware home. 
In a letter to Garland, Jordan and Representative Mike Johnson demanded answers on the appointment of a special counsel and questioned the alleged concealment of information by the DOJ. Jordan is demanding all documents and communications regarding the appointment of her and between the DOJ and the FBI related to classified materials. On Monday, the DOJ confirmed receipt of the letter but explained reasoning for the agency's noncompliance, noting that Jordan's request of non-public information that is central to the ongoing special counsel investigation. The department's longstanding policy is to maintain the confidentiality of such inf- information regarding open matters. This policy, are you ready for this? This policy protects the American people's interest in the even-handed, dispassionate, and effective administration of justice. <laughs> What BS? It protects Joe. It protects the the, the the American people's interest. Yeah, I mean, poll after poll, the American people think Joe's as dirty as a, a pig in mud in this thing. The DOJ added that disclosing non-public information about ongoing investigations could violate statutory requirements of court orders reveal roadmaps of our investigation, and interfere with the department's ability to gather facts, interview witnesses, and bring criminal prosecutions where warranted. Isn't it strange how the DOJ's attitude towards the rule of law seems to have an entirely different paradigm than it was when they invaded Mar-a-Lago? Mm-hmm. Exactly. I mean, where, was, where was your interest in keeping the law and protecting the law and protecting the rights of an ex-president when you went into Mar-a-Lago? Yeah, and they keep talking about, you know, comparing it to Milargo, Milargo and saying that, you know, hey, they were requesting these documents for Trump and their attorneys kept ignoring them. Well, first of all, Trump, I mean, he, he had the ability when he had these documents to declassify. Yeah, he was the president. So they don't know if they were declassified or not. Now, Biden never had that authority. No, no. And these go all the way back to when he was Senate. And he was in, all the way back when he was in Senate, and he, walked, he, walked, he waited, uh, what? Almost seventy days from the time they found oh, yeah. them oh, to, yeah. to let them know. Yeah, yeah. So who's more at fault here? Yeah, uh, same DOJ that basically tamps down the uh, Biden laptop. <laughs> yeah, and then then you know you hear these Democrat pundits, you hear Democrats, uh, you know, Senate, Congress people, and and everyone else talk about well, the, well, the case is different. Well, wait a minute. How, what do you know about the Trump case? If the Justice Department can't release anything yeah. on the Biden case, that means they can't release anything on the Trump case. So what in the hell do you know? To Great point. I mean, I, and no one challenges them on this. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty damn smart, but I'm not any smarter than most people. I mean, they're not asking those questions. DOJ went on to say judgments about whether and how to pursue a matter are and must remain the executive response, the exclusive responsibility of the department. <laughs> Oh, yeah, like Congress dare not remove the blindfold from Lady Justice while Merrick Garland doesn't. He, like, he, this guy doesn't even know whether Joe's a Republican or a Democrat because he is not attached to Joe at all. He's not looking out for Joe. He's looking out for the American people, is Merrick Garland. What a bunch of you-know-what. Stay with us. When we come back, we'll hopefully be joined by uh, Senator Phil Graham. We'll be right back. Back to news and views. Talk 96.3 and 103.7. Welcome back in. Senator Phil Graham served six years in the U.S. House of Representatives, 18 years in the U.S. Senate, where he was chairman of the Banking Committee. 
He was the author of the Reagan budget in the House and the landmark budget and banking legislation in the Senate. He taught economics at Texas A&M University. He has published numerous articles and books. He currently works in private equity and is a non-resident senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. His newest book, The Myth of American Inequality, How Government Biases Policy Debate, um, apparently everything that Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, and Maxine Waters spout, out about, spout off about uh, income inequality is highly suspect. Now, I think our listeners knew that. They would have guessed that anyway, but now we have some documentation to back up suspicions, and it's all here in this new book by Senator Phil Graham. Senator, thanks for joining us. Good to have you with us. Oh, thank you, Tom. Good to be on your show. Well, um, Senator, um, let's not sugarcoat the issue. Uh, you, you've, you've called the book The Myth of Inequality, so let's jump right into it. What is the myth? The myth is... Uh, based on the census's measure of household income. Uh, in 1947, when the census started measuring household income, almost all payments were made in cash equivalent. The government provided very few benefits in kind, like food stamps or rent subsidies. Mm-hmm. There was no Medicaid. And so the Census Bureau did not count in in-kind payments. But when the war on poverty came in uh, 1965, virtually all welfare programs or programs where government gives you uh, a debit card which you buy food with, which the census does not count as income. Uh, it pays your health care bills. If you're poor through Medicaid, but the Census Bureau does not count Medicaid uh, benefits as income. It pays your rent with rent subsidies, but the Medicaid, but the Census doesn't count those benefits as income. Uh, and there are over a hundred other federal, state, and local programs that transfer goods and services and income to low-income households that the census does not count. It also doesn't take into account taxes so that it doesn't count refundable tax credits to low-income people, but when it's comparing the income of high-income people to low-income people, by not taking into account taxes, uh, it overcounts the income of high-income people by not deducting the taxes they pay that they never see. So the bottom line, to make a long story short, Tom, is that the census says that the ratio of the top 20% of owners to bottom is 16.7 to 1. We show that when you count all transfer payments as income to people, it get the payment. And all taxes as income lost people, it pay it. The ratio is not 16.7 to 1, but 4 to 1. Anyhow. Now, you can say you can say that's too much, but it's a different debate than 16.7 to 1. We also show the poverty rate is between 2 and 3%, not 12%. And I think the big blockbuster is that despite the fact that, for example, you mentioned uh, Senator um 
uh, Warren uh, and, and Senator Sanders. Senator Sanders says the growth in income inequality is uh, uh, obscene and unsustainable. We show that if you count all transfer payments as income and take into account taxes, income inequality is actually slightly lower today than it was 70 years ago. Wow. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. Well, and that goes against, you know, the, the, the narrative that comes out of D.C. So two questions come to mind. Uh, and first of all, I'll make a comment. I'll put it in the form of a question. It, it, my, my first thought as I as I read reviews of your book, and I hear you talking now, is the the, the Maxine Waters, the Bernie Sanders, the Elizabeth Warrens, the Sheila, Jack, uh, Sheila, Sheila Jackson Lees of the world of Washington, D.C., don't they they want this method to continue because they don't want the problem to be fixed because they'd be out of a job well as i pointed out in a wall street journal article uh maybe six months ago that when president biden said if we double the refundable tax credit we'll cut child poverty in half i pointed out we wouldn't cut it in half because refundable tax credits don't count as income under the census's measure of poverty. Sure enough, when their report came out, they didn't count it. And then they issued a supplemental report saying if we had counted it, it would have had effect. But what happens is we, we say there's a problem. We say 12 to 15 percent of people in the country are poor. We provide benefits to help poor people, but we don't count them. And so five years later, we still got 12 to 15 percent of the people who are, quote, poor, and we increase benefits, but we don't count them. And the process goes on and on. The so, truth is that, uh, let me just give you two numbers. In 1965, the average family in the bottom 20 percent of owners in America got $9,300 from the federal government in transfer payments. In 2017, they got $45,400. Now, when the average household is getting $45,400 of benefits, uh, and the poverty rate is in the 25000 range, uh, the numbers just don't make any sense, no. and they don't make any sense because the census chooses not to count benefits that the taxpayer is paying for. Uh, Betty Hardy's with us, uh, Senator Graham. He's got a question for you, uh, Senator Graham. Yeah. I'm a uh, I'm a practicing CPA. Have been for thirty. I guess I'm on my thirty third or fourth year. So I know a little bit about the tax code and, and various payments and things. How about, you know, during COVID, uh, I think the 20, 2021 year was the first year, you know, uh, a majority of Americans did not pay income taxes. I think only like 47% in 2021 paid any income taxes. When you look at, you know, the COVID relief and those types of things, what 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 about the COVID relief that went specifically to to families and individuals uh, during this time? Is that counted in these numbers? No, well, no, it's not counted in these numbers. It's not counted in the official census numbers. Mm -hmm. Well, there were cash payments that was counted, 
but there were virtually no cash payments. And you can say when they got the refundable tax credit, which was a huge payment, uh, because it was a refundable tax credit, the census doesn't count taxes, they didn't count it. Wow. So the census is undercounting the income of low-income Americans by about two-thirds. And it's overcounting the income of high-income individuals by about 40% by not taking into account state, federal, and local taxes. You would think that um, this would be a uh, headline story on something like 60 Minutes. I mean, I realize they're very biased and they're not going to cover this. But have you gotten any kind of mainstream media coverage on this? Because now, now Benny said, again, he does taxes. He was probably aware of a lot of this. But, uh, you know, I'm not a tax guy. I'm not a, I'm not a numbers guy. And uh, quite frankly, uh, I saw this. And I, I was shaking my head and rolling my eyes in disbelief, but yet at the same time, it's knowing our government is pretty easy to believe. But have you gotten any – what kind of feedback have you gotten? Well, it's interesting. It's gotten uh, reviewed maybe in 10 or 15 different places, including the Wall Street Journal. And the reviews have been good. It's selling very well. It's in the top 1% of all nonfiction books now, so it's getting a lot of attention. Uh, the response from the left has been basically no response. Uh, there's been a little bit of response that, well, this just shows how our poverty program has worked <laughs> uh, because it's worked better than even we claim. Uh, well, it's worked in the sense that we have that we've eliminated want. That's clear. But listen to this number: when the war on poverty started, 68 percent of prime work age persons and the bottom 20 percent of income earners worked. That number is now down to 36 percent. Wow! Mm -hmm. So what half. we've done is substituted. Uh, we 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 dealt with need their needs, but we they paid for it at a price of idleness. And, and, course, and there's that probably a direct correlation to crime when you connect that. No, uh, well, I don't know about that. I, I think you can make that argument. Uh, Benjamin Franklin said, "Idle hands are the devil's workshop." Yep. Uh, but uh, you know, when we've got a critical labor shortage. And you've got only 36% of prime work age persons uh, that are supposedly in poverty that are working. Uh, clearly, you're paying people not to work. And look, it's hard to blame them when you can't make $45,300 a year or you can't make much more and the government's willing to give you that. Why would you work? Right. Exactly. And look, the, these numbers are based on the census collects all this data. They just don't use it. All these numbers are government numbers. Nobody has said the numbers are wrong. The, the basic the approach of the left has been, I wish this would go away. And two, this just shows that we've really had a big impact in that we have raised a bunch of people's income. That's about it. We, uh, you've, you've been a numbers guy all your life. 
uh, obviously yeah. all, all the way back to, to writing budgets for Ronald Reagan. Were you surprised by the findings? Yes. I knew there was a problem because starting in the 80s, economists kept finding that if you look at what poor people consumed in the 80s and you look at what they're consuming now, that only about 2 to 3% of people would have qualified as being poor in 1980. 42% of people uh, that are uh, said to be poor own their own home. The average size of the home is three bedrooms, one and a half baths. Wow. Uh, the size of a poverty home in America is as large as the middle income housing is in Germany, France, and England. Wow. Uh, so and we knew something was wrong. What happened in the pandemic is we had time to go back and put it all together. Couldn't do anything else, so might as well analyze the numbers, yeah, right? right. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, Tom sort of asked this, and I'll ask it again. I mean, I, you know, I'm I, I careful when I say this, that, that we have some smart people in Washington. I think we do, but sometimes their decisions uh, don't warrant that praise. I mean, there's some smart people in Washington that, that, that know this, that look at numbers. So so my question to you is, why, why, are, they, why are they not uh, – acknowledging this and keep saying that, hey, we've got to do more because we're not moving the needle on poverty. We've got to do more to to uh, well, defeat income I, I inequality. First of all, a lot of people don't know this. They see the number that the census puts out as household income, and poverty is calculated off it, and income inequality is calculated off of it. And people don't go behind numbers. What we did in the book is went behind the numbers and show that the census doesn't count two-thirds of all transfer payments um, as income to people who get it. So some people don't know. And, I, you know, I don't want to impugn people's motives, but there are obviously, uh, if you want the government to spend more and more money, uh, not acknowledging the solution is probably beneficial. And being able to claim that inequality is growing very rapidly and we've got to do something like get rid of American capitalism uh, uh, can be a powerful argument. And almost everybody seems to believe this, but we show in the book, and we've shown in the article in the Wall Street Journal, and I've presented this at Stanford University. I mean, I've, I certainly hadn't hidden this under a rock somewhere, um, that poverty is actually declining. I mean, uh, inequality, when you count all transfer payments and taxes, it's actually slightly lower today than it was in 70 years, 70 years ago. So we're creating this huge debate about a problem that doesn't exist. Right. And what's worse? Extraordinarily, as that sounds. And, and what's worse, too, uh, two-thirds of our budget, uh, federal budget, <laughs> a lot of these things um, that are not being counted in this income is, is right. part of our, our um, entitlements that – that really causing really, a deficit. Yeah, really. Unless Congress changes things, uh, we don't control two thirds of the budget. That that uh, well, many of these can, things are in there. And ha they certainly have in the past. We did during the Reagan years. 
we change these things. And, uh, you know, with the federal debt now 100% of GDP, at some point it's going to have to be dealt with. I'm hopeful we deal with it before we have a full-blown crisis on well, we better hurry up and do it then, because uh, it, it's uh, it's looking pretty nasty. Have you had a chance to share your findings with uh, the top Republicans up in D.C.? I mean, obviously. Yes, I have. Okay, and has their response been positive? I'm, it's been very positive, and what I'm what I'm trying to do is get Congress to pass a law that requires the Census Bureau to count all transfer payments as income and take taxes into account when it's calculating income inequality. Uh, Let's get our facts straight. Let's just get our facts straight. And then we can have a debate. You know, the plain truth is, Tom, that when we're providing now, counting all the pandemic stuff, over $50,000 a year uh, to low-income families in in government transfers, Maybe we ought to be debating how efficiently we're doing this. Instead of just simply debating, we've got to have more and more and more and more money. Uh, good uh, point. Uh, they, they, yeah, the, the, the government ought to be incentivizing the private sector to create jobs, and frankly, they ought to be incentivizing charities to uh, meet the needs of many people. But, boy, they're, when it comes to uh, abuse, they're, they're the number one uh, abuser uh, in our country is well, our government. And, have, and we've also got to say that if you're able-bodied and you're getting uh, $50,000 a year from the government, you've got to work. Yeah, something's wrong. Yeah. So so how do they get the book, uh, Senator Graham? Uh, you can buy it at a big bookstore, but the easiest way is to go on Google and order it. Um. You can do that by just simply putting uh, uh, put in uh, your search thing for Google or any of the other search instruments, uh, the myth of American inequality, and it will come up, and they've got now 30 pages of stuff about the book. They give you a couple of chapters. They show you, uh, they have the reviews from the Wall Street Journal and, and other places, and they've got a bunch of people you can order the book from. That's the easiest way to do it. Well, Senator Graham, uh, thanks for joining us. This this is a fascinating, and I need to get the book. It sounds like a fascinating read. I've I've read a bunch of reviews on it, but uh, now I can do, get a hold of it. Do we? If you read the, uh, everything you need to know to defend the American free enterprise system in this book. Well, thank you for what uh, what you have done uh, over these many decades, and thank you that you're still doing it. By the way, I got to say, every time I see you, you are the happiest looking guy I've uh, I've seen to ever come out of Washington D.C. <laughs> well, maybe because I'm out of Washington D.C. No, look, I love my years there, and I love my country, and it was a great blessing to serve it. But I've enjoyed being in the private sector. And uh, I'm very fortunate. Uh, uh, God is good to the ground. <laughs> Senator Graham, thanks a million for joining us. Thanks Look forward so to talking to Thank you down you. the road. Appreciate it. Stay with us. Benny, I'll be right back. Back to News and Views. Talk 96.3 and 103.7. 
Our thanks again to Phil Graham, 82 years old, writing books and uh, sharp as ever. I hope I'm not sharpened when I turn 82. It's not that far down the road. But uh, Well, I definitely think you need to, uh, you know, some of the people that have ex- <laughs> I shouldn't say old, that are experienced or seasoned. You know, the more you stay engaged and and challenge challenge yourself, challenge your mind. uh, Yeah, don't let your brain go lazy. Yeah, always learn something new. I mean, it goes for any age as far as I'm concerned. So um, tomorrow we're supposed to have a special guest with us. David Walker. David Walker. <laughs> Former uh, Comptroller General of the United States. We've had him on, what, a couple times? A couple times, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sadie and I interviewed him uh, live when he was down years ago. Uh, he was at a, a special event for uh, Walter Jones Jr. Uh, over mm-hmm. one of the country clubs. Mm-hmm. And then Thursday, we're supposed to have um, Board of Trustees, UNC Board of Trustees Chair David Bolick. Right. He'll be on. Um, in fact, there's a article out. Uh, well, there's an article out over the weekend in Fox. Uh, the uh, Wall Street Journal had a uh, op-ed on this. The College Fix had an article on this. University of North Carolina Chapel Hill will work to develop a school of civic life and leadership to teach students in an age of council culture and censorship how to develop the knowledge and skills needed to advance and support a healthy democracy. Uh, so this is initially being set up as, okay, uh, we're, you know, the woke has their side of the issue. We're now going to give everybody else the chance to express their, their views and their thoughts. Well, historically, universities have, have been an area of freedom of ideas and, and diverse thoughts. So uh, we will be get back to it. Yeah, it'll be an interesting interview. Got a good, good, good set of interviews this week. We'll be back tomorrow at 5 o'clock. We'll see you then. Bye-bye, everybody. All right, all right, all right.